In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What, in your opinion, is the number one Jennifer Lopez song? I'm not a huge Jennifer Lopez fan in general. Yeah, same. <laughs> I guess I would say, hmm. Oh, okay. It's either If You Had My Love, original. Oh, uh-huh. Or Jenny from the Block. Wow. I would pick either Play mm. or Love Don't Cost a Thing. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I would put Love Don't Cost a Thing up there as well. Okay. I, I would not put, <laughs> I would not put Let's Get Loud or Poppy. Can you tell that I am still listening to my 2000s Pop Diva uh. Google playlist? <laughs> What's new? I am off my aircast, basically, for the most part. Huzzah. So, very exciting. I can walk around, mostly, until the end of the day when I'm like, mm, maybe not. Yeah. Um, what else? Nothing spectacular. We watched a, okay, we watched a movie this week that I wanted to <laughs> recommend... Okay. With a with a content warning for it. Someone at Davy's work recommended him this movie, and I watched the trailer, and it looked great. And it was great. It's called Promising Young Woman. Okay. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Is it recent? It's 2020. Okay. That's and, recent. Yeah. <laughs> so it stars Carrie Mulligan. I'm not sure if I've seen her in other things, but she was great in this. I guess this isn't a spoiler. It's in the trailer. But it's basically about she plays a character who, for whatever reason, is going out and behaving as though she's sort of drunk or out of control at like mm -hmm. bars and letting guys take her home and mm -hmm. then like s switching it on them. Hmm. Like what's, why are you, what are you trying to do to me right now? And they're like, you know, freaking out basically. So it, it seems like a revenge ish sort of kind of movie. Okay. It's a lot more than that though. When you watch it, um, the only, it's a great movie. Totally, totally worth it. However, I will say, I usually don't need to hear a content warning for things right. before I hear them. I usually don't. I'm not easily grossed out or shocked by things, unless I know they're real, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Movies. And, but this was probably the most uncomfortable. There's a scene in this movie that is the most uncomfortable scene I've ever watched in Ooh. a piece of media that wasn't real. Okay. And... I had a very, very hard time with it for the rest of the evening after watching it. So oh. I understand why the scene is the way it is. Yeah. And I agree, I think. But it's it was very challenging to watch a yeah. certain scene. But I think it's worth it if, if you're into that kind of movie. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Great. I have... I don't have any recommendations this week, but I have a very exciting piece of random information. Oh, Okay. So a mutual friend of ours was recently camping in the Mojave Desert with a friend. And at night, they're like, it's just the two of them. They're kind of like sitting by the campfire and one of them like goes off to, I don't know, pee or something. <laughs> and comes back like yelling and, and freaking out. And our friend is like, what's going on? And it turns out they came across... A human skeleton. No. Recently? Yes. This was just... This was last week. Uh, okay. So it's it was like fully, like the, it was just skeleton. And the police don't have any idea who it is. <laughs> and they're investigating it now and all of that kind of stuff. But what 
amused me about this was <laughs> they reported it to the police, and the police's first question was, "Can you account for your whereabouts for the last forty eight hours?" And like this, they were like. Uh, this is like a skeleton. Like this is not somebody who <laughs> right. died or was killed in the last forty-eight hours. True. I just thought that was really funny, but I've already told him that I demand updates, <laughs> and Good. so I will make sure to share those as they come up. But if you are somebody who has been looking into cold cases and maybe the trail went cold at the Mojave Desert, you know your case might be close to getting solved. Wow, or closer anyway. That's insane. I know. And also, I saw a picture. Ooh. Ooh. So yeah, so I will share updates as that comes along. I can't wait. Should we get into the this week's episode? I'm, what's the phrase? Is it champing at the bit or chomping at the bit? Champing at the bit. I'm that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I am the episode recapper. This is season two, episode nine of Law and & Order. And the episode title is Renunciation, which ends up being something they say multiple times throughout the case or throughout the episode, but it really, as a viewer, doesn't mean anything to us. So mm-hmm. I don't know why they chose this for a title. Lazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really excited to report I, my eyes got like the size of saucers because when this episode opened, the pre-title sequence started with a dog and I, I, my eyes were glued to the TV. I gasped. I was certain that we were about to get a dog discovery. And I watched like a, I don't think my eyes left the dog the entire time it was on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case it looked in the direction of a crime and you were like, all right, dog discovery. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Sadly, we don't get a dog discovery, but his name is OJ. Ooh, remind me of the dog's name when we get to the crime. Okay, I shall. So there's a man walking the dog and he walks into a liquor store and he buys some stuff and he and the cashier have kind of a gross exchange that I don't think is really relevant, but I remember being like, this is stupid. I'm not going to write this down. Mm -hmm. He leaves the store. It's nighttime. He starts crossing the street and suddenly in the kind of distance, we see a car start driving toward him, but the headlights are off and then it like super accelerates really fast. And just at the last minute, it like turns the headlights on and we see him like look startled at the car as like it's about to mow him down and it just plows right into him. Thank goodness the dog is okay. Mm, Exactly. The man is not. Mm. (laughs) The cops arrive and they immediately are like, there's no skid marks. Like, so that clearly this car did not attempt to slow down before it ran over this man. The guy in the liquor store tells Logan and Soretta that it was a, a dark Mercedes, black or dark blue. And he, he was like, I saw it parked there. And they were just like sitting there in the dark. And then he said the car sped up when it like ran over this man. And Logan and Soretta kind of exchanged looks like, oh, so maybe this wasn't an accident. And then we get the title sequence. I take this time to solve a Rubik's Cube, and we're back. (laughs) Have you ever solved a Rubik's Cube? Absolutely not. (laughs) Not even close myself. Never in a million years do I think I could do it. I know that there's like a, whatever it starts with, you can do enough turns kind of like to get it to do it, like without looking at it kind of thing, you know? I've heard, but I I don't have enough interest to try. Neither do I. It's not, (laughs) it's not an accomplishment. Mm -mm. Ooh. (laughs) I'm going to get angry letters about Rubik's Cube uh, aficionados now. <laughs> Cube heads, as they're called. <laughs> so 
there is, when we get back from the title sequence, a woman whose hair and outfit tell me that she was the understudy for Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. And she is staring out the window and she goes, I knew something was wrong. It's a little too much. A little? (laughs) Yeah. Her name, by the way, is Jenna Keeley. And she's like, where's OJ? Logan says, out driving a white Bronco. And (laughs) kidding. He actually says there's a a police officer bringing your little dog to you any minute. Downstairs, they go in. So they're breaking the news to Jenna that her husband has been run over by this car and killed. They go downstairs and they talk to the doorman at the apartment. And they're like, what do you know about this couple? What do you know about Mr. Keeley? And the doorman is like, oh, yeah, he used to go out and walk the dog at the same time every night like clockwork. So I think that that's for Logan and Soretta kind of evidence to them that maybe since his schedule was so regular, somebody could have known his routine. Mm-hmm. And so they go, they ask the doorman about his job, and they go and interview a few of Larry's co-workers. He's a bartender. And the, like, co-worker bartender that they go and interview says that Larry used to be kind of a a star football player. He was en route to be in the NFL, but had an injury, ended up not making it, and just kind of has been a little bit of a bum, stringing things along. Uh, Going through you know, the motions. Not re- yeah, not really the best employee. And he did say that he also has like some gambling debt as well, because he's like, Larry could pick the wrong horse in a one-horse race. <laughs> So this whole lot of maybe he was killed for gambling debts is where Logan and Soretta are heading with their line of investigation at this point. So they're like, all right, let's go see and find out how big his gambling debt is. And Logan says to Soretta, let's rock and roll, big daddy. And I was (laughs) unable to continue recapping the episode because I was too busy vomiting in my mouth. Oh, you don't say that? I absolutely would never say that. And hearing Logan say that to Soretta. Uh, the only person who's allowed to say Big Daddy and get away with it is Blanche Devereaux on The Golden Girls, referring to her <laughs> father. A hundred percent. So they go back to interview Jenna Keeley, the widow, and now her hair, I can only really describe as like a mushroom mullet because it's kind of like just a, a helmet that's sort of like mushroom shaped, but then it's got a long just kind of panel in the back. The abundance of curls uh-huh, that seemed yes. to get curlier and tighter and mm-hmm. and take on shapes throughout the episode. I referred to her later on in my notes as the woman of ever-changing hair because her <laughs> hair turns into like 85 different shapes during the course of this episode. <laughs> yes! It's really, really strange. I think it and reminds some... me of Marge Simpson's sister's hair in Yo, the scene that's you're talking good. about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty accurate. So she says that, or they kind of tell her that they're thinking maybe this wasn't an accident, maybe Larry was killed for his gambling debts, and ask her what she knows about that. And she's like, well, you know, he owed everybody at one time or another, but he told me he had, like, paid everyone off, and about a year ago, he told me that it was all over with after he kind of got pushed around a little bit by some guys after he didn't pay them back. So I thought that was, like, all in the past. I just can't imagine that anybody would have killed him for his gambling debts. Mm. So they're like, okay, okay. They go and interview some of the neighbors of the building, and they interview a kind of cranky old man neighbor who said that he always heard them fighting through the walls. He's like, and Logan and Sarada want to know, when when did he hear them fighting? And 
He says, I don't know the date, but I filed a complaint with the manager, so he'll know when it was. So they go to the building manager, and he tells them that the old crotchety neighbor, Mr. Isaacson, filed endless complaints because he wanted them evicted from the building. Hmm, Sounds like our neighbors. (laughs) No, honestly. (laughs) But then he says, fat chance of that, because we learn that Jenna Keeley, the widow, bought the apartment the day after her husband was run over and killed. Very suspicious. Very suspicious. Very suspicious. We get some good suspicious music, too. Mm. So they go to talk to her. Her hair is in yet another bizarre shape. And (laughs) she says, well, like, you didn't ask me. Of course I wouldn't just be like, okay, police officers, I'm going to go buy some real estate now. But she's like, I'm not hiding anything. Uh, By the way, during this scene, they're sitting down at a literal tea party. Like, she has a full tea set with, like, teacups that she's pouring pouring for them. There might as well be a teddy bear in the corner. It's invisible, though, but you have to blow on it. (laughs) (laughs) She says that the residents of the building were all given 90 days to buy, like, the building went co-op, and they were all given 90 days to buy their property in the building. That was, that 90-day window was about to expire, and Logan goes, and suddenly you have all this money from a life insurance policy. And Jenna's like, yes, exactly. It made sense not to wait because I had this influx of cash, the building of my deadline was coming up to buy in, so I just did it, even though my husband was run over by a car the day before. I mean, you know, can't pass up a good deal. I guess. She's a maximista. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Girl boss. So, so back at the station, Logan again calls Soretta Big Daddy, and I felt my soul actually leave my body this time. Maybe this is why they wrote him off the show next season. Maybe. There was, like, some gross relationship happening between these two so they learned that the life insurance policy of larry keely was worth up to three hundred thousand dollars and they're like okay that's a you know good amount of money but it's not like millions or anything that would be like red flag city of she killed her husband but you know still there's some there's some motive and maybe some opportunity here Meanwhile, Soretta realizes that the noise complaints that Mr. Isaacson had filed all lined up with when Larry Keeley was at work. Hmm. So, question marks pop up over their head because now they have to figure out if he was at work, who was Jenna Keeley arguing with all of these times that the neighbor made noise complaints? Hair. Her hair. She's fighting a losing battle with that hair, so I could see some yelling. It's definitely one. So they go interview some of her her co-workers. Uh, she works at a school. She's a school teacher. And they interview the principal and some fellow teachers. And the science teacher basically tells them that Jenna essentially had champagne taste and milk money, that essentially she wanted, she wanted it all. She wanted the dream life. But, uh, you know, between her school teacher salary and Larry with his gambling problems and being a bartender, that wasn't likely to happen anytime soon. And he did hear them say that he overheard them fighting once and that Larry said to Jenna that he would kill her if he saw ever saw her with that pack kid again. And they're like, what do you mean that pack kid? And the science teacher tells them Roy Pack. He's a junior who she was tutoring for the SATs. So, I need to bring something up at this point. (laughs) Throughout this whole episode, we're going to discover very, very shortly that Jenna and Roy Pack have a relationship. 
Not once in the course of this episode do they ever raise the issue of the fact that she is an adult and he is legally a child that she is sleeping with. Mm -hmm. Not once. Nobody nobody even alludes to it. Nobody bats an eye. Nothing is ever raised in the course of this episode. So I think that's very strange. Uh, Yeah, and hang on to your hats, folks. Okay, great. (laughs) So Logan, of course, you know, when he hears that she was tutoring this junior that Larry was kind of upset about, Logan immediately is like, okay, they're sleeping together. Let's go interview Roy Pack. Roy, I will describe as having kind of your typical 90s skater haircut. Oh, God. He could have been the worst. It's it's terrible. He could have been the drummer for Weezer or something. (laughs) He could have been like Roger Klotz's best friend in Doug. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So, you know, they're like, tell us about your relationship with Jenna Keeley. He says, she's my teacher. And they're like, did you ever see her socially? And he goes, I'm no Rob Lowe. I have enough trouble getting dates with juniors. I mean... Rob Lowe is very pretty. Yeah. Did you watch Parks and Rec? I love Parks and Recreation. So, they ask him about about his whereabouts on the 22nd, which was one of the dates that Mr. Isaacson filed a noise complaint. And he said, oh, that, um, I was at the opera with my dad. You know, like you do. Always. But the dad actually substantiates that when they go to interview him. And they're like, how is he affording all this tutoring and the opera and blah, blah. And he says that his mom takes makes a ton of money. She's really well-to-do. And they're like, does she have a Mercedes? And he's like, maybe. So they go interview her now. She is like kind of the owner of this company. It looks like maybe she's a fashion designer because uh, they're working in kind of like a, I don't know, a clothing manufacturing building. Mm-hmm. And they ask if she spends much time with her son. And she replies, quote, biggest regret of my life. (laughs) She says, I didn't even fight for custody. He's better off with his father. So she clearly never wanted children. She's just, you know, giving them some money, doesn't really, is not really involved with their lives. But we do learn that she has a midnight blue Mercedes that is, quote, brand new, or like a couple months old, basically. So they go to check out this brand new Mercedes to see... Are there are there any uh, you know blood or fibers on this car? And when they get there, they see that it has a broken headlight. And the garage attendant tells them that her son had used the car and asked him not to say anything about the broken headlight. A little punk. He's a liar. <sighs> and uh, they they decide that they're they've now got enough to arrest Roy Pack for the murder of Lawrence Keeley. So Stone goes and meets with Pack and his lawyer, and he tells Pack, you know what, (laughs) he's essentially like, you're dumb, and I don't think you planned this alone. And 25 years in jail for lusting after your teacher is not worth it. And he's like, it wasn't lust. I love her. So they tell him, okay, his lawyer basically says, if we can get him to cooperate and say that he was involved in planning this with the wife, Jenna, uh, can we plead him down to manslaughter too? So he's like, okay, sure. If he, if we can get Jenna on the stand trying her for plot for conspiracy murder or whatever, um, we'll plead him down to manslaughter too. Because he, he's, again, 16. 
16 year old. 16. So Robinette goes to talk to Jenna of the ever-changing hairstyles, and she says that them sleeping together, quote, just happened, and she called it off after Larry caught them together, and that she and Larry were actually reconciling, like things were going well for them. And Robinette asks her, okay, well, what about Roy Pack then? What is What did he think about you reconciling? And she says that he wouldn't let it go. He basically thought that we would be together if Larry were out of the picture. So... They go back to Roy and tell him that Jenna has essentially hung him out to dry and that she's saying he did this alone. And so our deal of pleading you down is off unless you can give us something that implicates her in this case. He does some really bad dramatic acting and it really bad. He tells them that we tried to pay someone to do it and tells them about how they tried to hire a man named David Coffer. So Roy apparently sold his bonds for college. He had some savings bonds, I guess, to give her the money to have Larry killed. Stone and Robinette tell Jenna Keeley that if they go and find that Mr. Coffer corroborates this story, then she's going to go down for murder. I have to ask you, Yes. Don't you think 2000 seems like a very cheap price to murder somebody for? Extremely. Like, I don't know how, what that goes for these days. <laughs> but I feel, I feel like when I hear, like, on My Favorite Murder or things like that, when they talk about people who got caught going on the dark web to have their spouse killed or whatever, that it's something, like, in the range of, like, 50000 right? or more. I mean, $2,000, I can't even pay off a credit card. Yeah, it's not worth it. No. <laughs> You gotta make it worth it, people. (laughs) (laughs) So she says that Larry was just digging them deeper and deeper into debt with his gambling, and that, okay, I did talk to Mr. Coffer and say, okay, I want you to kill my husband, but then she just changed her mind. She woke up one day and told him not to do it. Stone, at this point, looks at Jenna and says, you've been lying to us every step of the way, so why should we believe you now? She doesn't really give a good response to that, but they choose to believe her in this moment. So they go and interview Coffer, and they're like, hey, we heard you were hired to kill Larry Keeley by his wife, Jenna Keeley, and her 16-year-old student. And he's like, never heard of him. (laughs) And they're like, really? Because both of them named you by name. So maybe you should cooperate with us. He's like, okay, fine. Yes, (laughs) They did hire me to kill him. I never planned to kill him. He owed me gambling money, so I was using it to... I was just taking the money, essentially scamming Jenna and Larry, or Jenna and Roy, and keeping the money. And I never had any intention of killing him. And she came to see me the next day and told told me, plans off. <laughs> so at this point, they're kind of leaving everything in Roy's lap. So at trial... Coffer testifies that they had that they had planned to have Mr. Keeley killed and that Jenna had called him the next day to call the whole things uh, whole thing off. Stone asks, was Roy Pack there when Jenna told you she changed her mind? And he was like, yeah. And they ask him, how, how did he take that news? Did he also want the deal off? And he was like, no, the kid was fuming. He was out of his mind, angry. And he kept talking about how he would take care of it himself. So Jenna takes the stand, and her hair is now in the shape of SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) And she says that she and Roy had become lovers, but she ended it right after going to Coffer for the contract killing. She claims that she panicked about 
paying for Larry's gambling mistakes for the rest of her life, that if he were divorced, she would still be saddled with his debt, she would have to pay him alimony because she makes more money, and so she was just panicked that she was going to be in debt for the rest of her life because of Larry's gambling problem. And that when she broke it off with Roy, he wouldn't accept it. And also, in this story, she also says, he's just a boy. Which again, nobody says, why were you sleeping with a minor? Mm. Apparently not an issue. She also says that Roy was the first one to suggest killing Larry. And on the stand, when they get Roy on the stand, he says that their relationship had been, you know, for about six weeks and that it ended because her husband came home once and he was there and said he was going to divorce her. But she apparently told him, we can be together. I just need you to, like, be a man and man up and take care of the situation. So so suddenly... Robinette realizes, um, kind of in a little side scene that we get in the DA's office with Schiff and Stone and Robinette while they're talking about how the case is going, he suddenly pieces together that Coffer had said that he kept the money for gambling debts that Larry had owed him, but Coffer was in prison at the time, so he is also lying about what's happening. By the way, everybody in this entire episode is lying the whole time. <laughs> over and over and over, over again. and over. Just lies, lies, lies. So he gets back on the stand. They tell him, okay, they're like, okay, so you were in prison at the time, so give us the real story about what was happening, what's going on here. And he spills everything. He says, all right, here's what actually happened. Jenna Keeley approached me and gave me $2,000 and told me to pretend to be a hitman so that we can con Roy Pack into killing Larry. So with all of that information now, they are able to arrest Jenna for conspiracy to commit murder because she had manipulated everyone in this story. And the episode concludes with Stone and Robinette being like, all right, we got her. And that's the end of the episode. Intense. Great job. Thank you. And are you ready? I am. I had a guess for who this case was about, and I guessed it, but I don't know if I'm correct or not. Okay. Do you want to tell your guess? Yes. So my guess was that this was about Mary Kay Letourneau. Drumroll, please. Yes. It's not. Oh my god! <laughs> but is it somebody I should know? I think you'll know. I th- you probably will. It's a huge... It was a huge case. Okay. So, this episode was inspired by the murder of Greg Smart and the trial of Pamela Smart. Oh, those names sound really familiar. This episode of Law & Order was the first piece of media inspired by this case. Oh, okay. But this case has had like (laughs) 30-some-odd things on it. It's definitely been on my favorite murder. I didn't even look back and see where it was. I feel like I so often, like my brain doesn't hold on to pieces of information like a person's name very mm-hmm. well. It like holds on to like the essence of the story. And so I'm fe- I feel like I'm probably going to recognize this once you start telling it. Oh, totally. So Pamela Wojas and Gregory Smart, they're both in New Hampshire in 1986 on winter break. I believe Gregory works or lives there still. Um, Pamela's visiting from school. Okay, so she's in school at the time? Yeah, she's a junior at Florida State University, but she's back home visiting. Okay. So in New Hampshire at a New Year's Eve party on winter break in 1986, the two of them meet, and they have instant chemistry. 
And at the time, like I said, she's a junior. She's majoring in communications. And in February of 1987, about a year after this, Greg decides to move to Florida to be closer to Pam because they're still dating. And what was he doing at the time? It's not clear. Um, okay. And I mean, this isn't a spoiler because I said it's the murder of Greg Smart. Um, oh. <laughs> but I don't know a ton about him before Okay. Before this crime. Okay. By all counts, a pretty stand-up fellow. Pam and Greg, they're dating. They're living in Florida together. And, well, I think Greg's living in Florida. Pam's at school. And two years later, on May 7th, 1989, they get married and they settle back to Derry, New Hampshire. That's her hometown. And I think it's his home- hometown, too, or close to it. He's a couple years Dear. older than her. Okay. One of the things that bonded them together right away is their love of heavy metal music. Pam okay. is a huge Van Halen fan. It's not the early it's 1989. I, I, I would not call Van Halen metal by a long shot. Yeah, I wouldn't call Van Halen a metal band either, but that's kind of how it's presented and I think to the general public, it's hair metal, I guess. 80s hair metal. I, I get Okay, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> So she's such a huge fan of Van Halen that she even names the Shih Tzu that Greg gets her during their relationship, Halen. And hmm. she has a vanity plate, New Hampshire. Halen? Halen. Huge wow, fan. girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's reported, they're reportedly a very happy, quirky couple together um, in, the early, in the early days. One of the things they bond over, which I was so glad I read this because it was bothering me, they spell their names unconventionally when they uh. shorten them. So Greg... Is, is it like Pam with a Y or something? It's Pam with an E, like Pamela, but just the L-A taken off. Wait, it's Pamela with an E? It's P-A-M-E. To Pame? It says it's pronounced <laughs> Pammy. Okay, all right. And then Gregory is spelled with one G, but he shorts it, shortens it with an extra G, because they're just so quirky. Listen, they're young. <laughs> <laughs> but it was bothering me because all the articles kept saying Pam, and it was spelled P-A-M-E. And I'm like, am I crazy? So they're together for a little while, and eventually Greg realizes he's got to start getting serious and being a career guy. And so he gets this suit and tie type of job in insurance with his dad, and uh-huh. he cuts his hair, and he looks very clean cut. And Pam decides to settle into work in education, doing... um. Uh, she gets hired as the role of director of media services for the school district. Okay. So they're married, and about seven months into the marriage, around, mm, I want to say, right after Christmas time, mm-hmm. Greg confesses to her that he had an affair. He had cheated on mm-hmm. her, which mm-hmm. okay. destroys her trust in him. And reportedly, this is when their marriage becomes a little shaky. It's into their first year. And according to Pam, at this point in her life, this was her lowest point, and she began taking Prozac. She claimed she was hallucinating at the time a little bit, too. On May 1st of 1990, about a year after they're married, a little okay. actually it's about seven days before their first year anniversary. Okay. At 10.10 p.m., 22-year-old Pam arrives home to find 24-year-old Greg lying face down on the ground, and the house is in total disarray. So she runs, she lives in a condo, she runs to the neighbor's door, and she's screaming and pounding on it. My husband, my husband, help, help, I don't know what's wrong with him. And at 11.19... So I know this story now. Okay. (laughs) So the neighbor calls 911, you can hear the 911 tape, and she's like, my neighbor's frantic, I don't know what's going on. She says her husband's on the ground. 
Um, and so they send somebody out, and at 1119, he's pronounced dead of a gunshot wound to the head. I feel like if anybody was, anybody I knew was face down in my house with a gunshot wound to the head, my first cho- action wouldn't be running to the neighbors to say, I don't know what's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. That well, seems odd. It, it does seem odd to many people. Her Her explanation is that she walked in the door like any other day. And when she mm-hmm. opened the door, she noticed right away from where she could see in the doorway that there was um, her candlesticks and stuff that were on the shelf were like on the floor. And mm-hmm. she saw something, a, a speaker um, knocked off of a countertop and on the floor. And then when she looked at that stuff on the floor, she saw among it, like a foot sticking out from around the corner. And when she like turned the corner, she saw Greg lying there and she like just panicked and ran next mm-hmm. door because she was afraid that something had happened to him because the house was ransacked looking from where she was standing and she was worried someone else might be inside. Okay. So as you said, this was suspicious to some people, but overall the media started covering it right away and it was covered as a robbery gone wrong and she was on the news all the time talking about her. She was a grieving wife. She doesn't know what's happening. She's so upset. It's just so close to their first year anniversary and who would have done something like this? It's tragic. I guess also I shouldn't judge <laughs> how somebody reacts in a emergency situation because I just have to remind myself that when I accidentally lit my kitchen on fire once, mm-hmm. I literally just ran back and forth between the fire extinguisher and my cell phone, not doing either calling 911 or using the fire extinguisher. I, I don't judge you at all. I've we've, how, <laughs> how many of us have been in these high-stakes situations and you're just, like, paralyzed and, like, totally. walking around like you don't even know how to, to use your limbs anymore? Yeah. While all this is going on and she's in the media, it's very obvious to people that she looks very, you know, she doesn't look like the average grie- grieving wife, the average grieving person she's done up in full makeup she's wearing beautiful clothes her hair is all done up for the time by the way mm-hmm. if you see her hair you can totally understand the hair of the person who plays her in the episode oh blessing i can't wait to see photos uh she's yeah there's no shortage so <laughs> no shortage of hair <laughs> there's no shortage of hair or photos of the hair <laughs> so at the time the crime scene unbeknownst to Pam, was being investigated a little more thoroughly because, according to authorities, it bore no evidence of a forced entry, and it looked a little staged. Okay. So, while in interview she looks upset and sad, people are starting to make comments that she's in a lot of them. And one reporter in one of the documentaries I watched, he says that he was one of the first people who interviews her. And he says that before they started rolling, she asked him if she should go grab the frozen top layer of her wedding cake from the freezer, um, just to put it on the on like the table for like uh, a moment for the piece, like if it would make it more emotional, since their one year anniversary is just about a week away. That's creepy. I guess they told her not necessary. And yeah. <laughs> on May fourteenth, nineteen ninety, this is not too long after the crime. The crime was May May first. Okay. An anonymous tip is called in saying that Pam was involved as well as three teenage boys and a female intern of Pam's. The hmm. murder weapon for the for this crime was a 38, which who knows what that, it's a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and it's found by one of the boys one of the three boys 
that was on that anonymous call um, is found by one of the boys' fathers and turned okay. into police because they're like, um, I know someone was murdered. I don't know what my kid's doing with a gun. I don't care if it's him or not. I have to give this in. So good guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's some good integrity there. Honestly. So the three teen suspects are William, a.k.a. Billy Flynn, uh, Patrick Randall, and Vance Latime Jr., who is referred to as J.R. most of the time. Okay. So the three of them are arrested on June 12th, and they're told they're going to be tried as adults, despite the fact that they're all, I believe, 16. And the boys decide to strike up a plea bargain with the prosecution, and we'll discuss that later. But with this... On August 1st, 1990, Pamela Smart was arrested for conspiracy to conf- commit first-degree murder. Or as some know her, Pame. <laughs> Pame. Pame was brought in and convicted of a really ridiculous shortened version of her name. So she's arrested on August 1st, 1990, and the trial begins on March 4th, 1991. This was, and I feel like we've heard this about other things before, but everything I read said that this was the first trial aired on live television, gavel to gavel. Huh, okay. Like maybe other things had shown portions? Maybe, but this this predates like O.J. Simpson and um, all the, the Menendez brothers. So I don't know, but... Huh, interesting. And that's one of the reasons I was wondering if the O.J. thing was mentioned because this was a media circus of a oh, case. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. wonder if they did something with OJ, but there's another connection to OJ, too. So the case was shown for five weeks. It was broadcast on the air on almost every single major network from 9.30 a.m. till 4 p.m. Wow. Yeah. Bill Flynn, so Billy Flynn, he <laughs> was a 16-year-old student at the time of the murder. And Please tell me he was into theater. <laughs> no, he's into heavy metal. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And he admits to being the one who pulled the trigger. Oh, wow. Okay. So according to them, Pamela set the entire thing into action because she was having an affair with Billy, 16 at the time. Uh-huh. And I will say, throughout this entire case, it's never, it's brought up a lot that she was having an affair with a younger person. Yeah. In the, guy, in the context of you're cheating on your husband, it doesn't matter that it's that small of a gap because... He's 16, and you are, you know, his teacher, people are saying. So this is not really brought up, though, in terms of, like, sexual assault or anything like that. Right. Like, because (laughs) in New Hampshire, the age of consent is 16 years old. Okay. I was going to say, that's the... uh, I was going to say, when I was recapping the case, I was like, maybe New York's, like, age of consent at the time was lower or something but mm, i don't yeah. know okay but wow so 16 it okay. never gets brought up in that kind of context it gets brought hmm. up a ton but never not once is it like you sexually took advantage of this boy and it's horrible for this boy it's more like right you sexually took advantage of this boy and that's why things happen the way they did right okay okay so we'll see what what, what we think about that at the end so she was having the affair with Billy, and the motive is because she was threatening to end things with Billy if he didn't take Greg out of the picture for her. So I'm going to break up with you if you don't kill my husband? Correct. So like it was like, I won't even, I won't have sex with you anymore if my husband's in the picture, and the only way to get him out of the picture is for him to be killed, and I want you to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So the two had met 
so the, the reason the two had even met is because she was volunteering with an anti-drug program at, at the schools, as well as being the media, I forget the, the title, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. And the, the program was called Project Self-Esteem, and he was part of it. But they yeah. were filming like a video as an assignment, and it was supposed to be like a, um, you know, for a contest. And okay. so since she was head of the media department or whatever, she came down to do the taping of it at the high school, and that's where she meets him. And mm-hmm. the commercial was for orange juice. So there's oh, the other OJ. OJ. Okay. At this shooting of the commercial, they bond over their love of heavy metal music because I think she's wearing like a he's wearing a Van Halen shirt or something. And so they get to talking and everybody says they hit it off really well. And as the marriage between Pamela and Greg was faltering, the two of them just became closer, according to him. And she seduced him, and she took his virginity. They would flirt, have sex in private places, and nobody knew of the affair besides uh, Pamela's student intern, Cecilia, and a couple of Billy's friends. Wow. Yeah. So he <laughs> and his friends, the the two other boys that we talked about that are on trial with him, that were, you know, originally arrested with him, J.R. and Pete, they had been planning this murder for weeks. Um, they would get together. They had come up with several different ideas of how they were going to carry it out because he didn't want to do it by himself. They say that Pam was in on it with them the whole time, that they met most of the time alone. But it was her plan that she came up with that they ultimately went with. Went with. So okay. the plan was she would leave the cellar door and the back doors unlocked for them to get in. Mm-hmm. And Billy would go in and he would shoot Greg. And the other two boys would make it look like a burglary. So according to them, they they went to carry it out and they get the gun. And when they got to the house, Greg wasn't home. So they decided to ransack the place first. And so collectively, the three boys ransack the place. And there's a fourth boy named Raymond Fowler. And he's in the getaway car. He's just a passenger, though. Okay. We'll get to him later. So he waits in the getaway car, and then Pete and Billy stay inside. JR goes back out to the car because he's the driver. And now Pete mm-hmm. and Billy are awaiting for Greg to get home. When he arrives, I think it's around 8.30 or something like that, they say. They uh, rush him. They overpower him together. And then Billy's sort of holding him up from behind. And he so he's facing Pete. So Greg is facing Pete with Billy behind him holding him. And so Billy was supposed to use a knife to kill him. But he was chickening out, standing there with a knife, he says. Um, He says this on the stand, and he's, like, crying. He could barely get it out. He can barely keep it together. They have to keep asking him to if he needs a minute. And he says that he had the knife out. He chickened out. He couldn't do it. So what he did instead was he patted and motioned to his chest um, so that Pete can see him doing it from Mm -hmm. behind this guy. Mm -hmm. And... And he said that Pete nodded to him as if to say yes. And then he that's where he held his gun underneath where he was patting on his chest. So he takes okay. his gun out. He says, God forgive me. And he shoots Greg in the head. And then they all fled. <sighs> okay. The other star witness, probably the star witness of the whole trial, is named Cecilia. She's the student intern for Pam. Mm-hmm. On trial, she testifies for the prosecution and... She had previously agreed to tape a conversation over the phone with Pam, and that's what's led into evidence, and it's pretty much the biggest piece of evidence that ties Pam to any of this. Okay. Everything else is really anonymous tips and word of mouth and what is yeah. hearsay, whatever. Yeah, suspicion. Yeah. yeah. So they play the tape in the courtroom, and um, they also present a like 
huge transcript that they'll refer to throughout the conversation where Pam says things like, quote, nothing was wrong until they fucking told Ralph, end quote. And Ralph is a boy who had come forward, was one of the students that had come forward. And other damning things, and there's a lot of damning things inside of the exchange. It's not super long, but this is probably the most damning exchange during it. Cecilia says to her, so he's not going to say that you offered to pay him. He's going to say that you knew about it before it happened, which is the truth. I'm talking about one of the boys. And then Pam responds, right. Well, so then I'll have to say, no, I didn't. And then they're either going to believe me or they're going to believe JR, 16 years old in the slammer. And then who will they believe? Me with a professional reputation. And of course, you know, that's the thing. They're going to believe me. End quote. Hmm. So, you know, it's pretty damning. There's a lot of things in there about, in that vein. In in her defense in this moment, like, could could Cecilia have been saying, like, this is what the prosecution is going to say and Pam is explaining how her factual statements are what will be believed? Yes, it could mean that. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And she also testifies afterwards. So they play the tape, and Cecilia continues, and she testifies that Pam and Billy were together a lot. Everybody saw them together a lot. A lot of students that didn't even know about them had suspected about them being together, and they also testified. And she says that, Pam helped them plan it. She corroborates what the boys said. Pam had been gossiping with her that she wanted Greg out of the picture. She says that she had walked in on Pam and Billy having sex multiple times. It's She's got a lot to say. She's wow. really laying it all out there on the stand. When they put Pam on the stand, she denies all involvement, of course. She admits to the affair, and she says that she did not disclose it originally because she knew how it was going to look, and she had the affair with the boy for eight weeks, knowing the whole time that it was wrong from the very beginning. And she says she's the one who called it off, and she called it off bef- well before the murder. She wasn't with him still. And mm-hmm. this might be the possible motive, I think, that the defense is coming up with, that, you know, he was so upset that she broke up with him. Right. So she also talks about the conversation with Cecilia, of course, and she defends herself by saying that all of her initial statements in the conversation about what they're talking about, because they never say, like, initially, like, the murder or this. They're just talking about something. Mm-hmm. And she said all the initial statements that she was talking about was about the affair. And then when Cecilia specifically brings up the murder and says, like, oh, you know, th- this is what they're going to do, whatever. She says that she believed that Cecilia knew more about the crime than she did because she kept dropping things about it. She kept asking her, which is what she was doing mm-hmm. for the prosecution. Um, un- un- quote unquote unbeknownst to her to Pam but yeah. because of that she thought that if she pretended to know more than she did she can get more information out of Cecilia and so her like affirming words on the tape are just her sort of trying to like go along with it and see if she can get more information yeah to like prompt Cecilia to say more basically exactly so okay. an expert in forensics is also brought to the stand he's the only other person that I think was really important and his name is dr fossum and he testified that the trajectory of the bullet must have come from someone standing in front of greg as it came from the top of the skull down at a 45 degree angle towards the back of the skull so even if greg had been on his knees which i think they end up saying yeah still it would be very unlikely for someone that would be behind him to be able to shoot at that angle right which would be inconsistent with all of the boys stories 
And plus, you'd be shooting toward yourself exactly. if you are behind him. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So the jury is out for 13 hours. They come back with a guilty verdict for accomplice to first degree murder for Pamela. And then mm -hmm. in a later trial, she shortly after, she's also convicted of conspiracy to commit first degree murder and witness tampering. Okay. So she's sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole on March 22nd, 1991. And the three male um, suspects were all given lighter sentences because of their involvement with the prosecution. Billy and Pete were sentenced to up to 40 years. J.R. was sentenced to up to 30 years. And Cecilia, um, immunity. A lot to unpack here. Yeah. First, I want to go over sort of the headlines and the kind of the way the media was portraying this case at the time. At the very beginning of all of this, she's being portrayed in the media as a grieving widow. And then immediately afterwards, all of the stuff about her is her in handcuffs and being a temptress. Mm. Some of the headlines that are out at the time are, Temptress Pam gave this sexy photo to her teenage love, Billy Flynn, before he killed her husband. This is before any, like, conviction. Hmm. Also, the teacher gets detention. Ew. <laughs> yeah. Killer teacher Pam. Teacher gave pupils lessons in murder. God. Okay. News reporters, <laughs> sometimes you just need to calm the fuck down. Uh-huh. Okay, wait, I have a question, though. Uh -huh. So these articles are happening prior to any conviction. So is there any, at any point, a discussion of, like, it was a trial by media because there's no way the jury couldn't have been influenced by the conversation that was happening about the case? A hundred percent. Okay. Um, another thing about the media and the way they were portraying it, and this kind of goes into a little bit of what you're saying. Bill Spencer is the reporter who is sort of like leading the charge on this. He did some okay. of the early reports that were really popular on the news. I forget what affiliate he works for, but he is basically the one that is on every outlet. He's on Sally Jesse Raphael, Geraldo, and he even argues with the family of Pamela Smart on television shows. <laughs> and I have to mention this now. One of the movies or films that ends up being made about this case, mm -hmm. Bill Spencer plays himself in the movie. Ew, uh, that just seems gratuitously like self-serving money grubbing. Sure does. WMUR-TV, that's the affiliate in the area where this is happening in Derry. They air a, a piece on this called Anatomy of a Murder, and they air it to broadcast two days before jury selection. Oh my god. For the jury selection, more than 450 jurors had to be called in because so many of them had to be eliminated because they knew too much about the case. <laughs> right. 450. Multiple The amount of calls. Like, effort that took. Ugh. Okay. I wanted to talk about all this stuff because... I remember this case. Oh, really? I, I don't do. know that I ever did, like, see it when it was happening. I remember it being on the news because I remember her face so specifically. And I remember the image that they always, the images they'd always used to portray her were these po photos of her posing in a bikini. <sighs> the photos are in almost every single news article about her. So they say in the media that this is a photo that she was giving to Billy to sort of seduce him okay i watched a documentary that i wanted to recommend um for this called captivated the trials of pamela smart mm -hmm. it's from 2014 on hbo um and there's a lot of interviews with pam pamela smart 
in 2015 and, and prior previously a lot of interviews with all the people that were involved in the case, um, including some of the witnesses. A lot, It's really very comprehensive and it shines the light on it in a different way. So now there's a school of thought that Pamela Smart might have not had a fair trial, as you said. Yeah. And here are some of the reasons that are put out by that camp. Yeah, yeah. Now, remember, originally, the three boys were the ones who were arrested. Right, and, and she was not. Exactly. Yeah. Her name was nowhere on the case whatsoever. They had, they were going to plead guilty originally, but the prosecution said that they would get plea bargains if they were going to testify against Pam instead. And so... Right, so the three boys had motive to give them evidence that Pam was involved. Exactly. The only evidence to show that Pam is involved is their testimony and then the recorded conversation. The bikini story, the big bikini story that was all over the place, is a lie. So... the photo Supposedly she had given him the photo to seduce him. That never happened? Correct. The photos okay. are of a set of photos, which you can find the rest of. And they're okay. her and her best friend entering a bikini contest probably for like a heavy metal thing <laughs> okay the other photos show them being silly together in the same bikinis okay it's very different when you see them all together right because they had been peddling the story that she took these photos to seduce him exactly got it okay judge gray he's the presiding judge over the case they tried to get the trial moved to a new location because again it was incredibly prejudicial, especially since that right. news coverage had come out two days before jury selection and had continued to be on all the time throughout the whole case. He denied the attempt to move the trial, and many people believe it's because he wanted to—he wanted that big case. It was going to be the first televised one, and he wanted a piece mm. of it. Got it. Okay. Jurors were not sequestered through the entire case. What? Not they, It was asked, and they didn't think it was necessary. So they got to watch the nonstop media coverage every— a step of the way from beginning to end. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah. They also talk a lot about the Heisenberg principle about the trial and how people act differently mm -hmm. when they're being watched. Yes. And a former inmate who shared cells with Billy Flynn mm -hmm. and was an acquaintance of the other boys in the jail too, he says yeah. that they would, Billy and the boys would do lines of coke before the trial because they said it would oh. get them more emotional for the stand. And then they say, he also says that they would come back to the jail cell and all of them together would watch the case on trial in the jail at, on TV. Like the whole jail was watching it. They were like local celebrities huh. and they would do it and they would smoke pot while they watched it. And allegedly he says that they said they were doing what they got to do and they bragged about their performances as they watched it. Like, hey, look at me crying. Yeah. In addition to them watching all the media coverage and that not being fair... The media coverage was doing public opinion polls constantly about who's guilty and who's not. And right. they were all like very, very, very much against Pam. People were yeah. outraged by the mere sight of her on TV. They were disgusted by her. And they also were constantly airing videos of the victim's family grieving, um, calls to get, you know, calling out to the public to get these people convicted. And there's speculation that they would be afraid of how they would be treated in their own... The jurors would be afraid of how they'd be treated in their own communities if they did not give a conviction that the public agreed with. Right. And Judge hmm. Gray, after the trial, is quoted and is never denied saying that he hopes that Clint Eastwood plays him in a movie for this. Ugh. Raymond Fowler, 
He's the fourth boy who we talked about very briefly. His name only came up once, shockingly, even though he was in the getaway car. Yeah. Raymond Fowler, he was also a a young uh, student there. I think he was 16 as well. He's the passenger in the getaway car, and he he came forward initially um, when the boys were— Why do you need a—hold on. Why is he a passenger in a getaway car? (laughs) It's not clear as to why he was there. (laughs) The four of them maybe just traveled together because they were friends, and they were like— They were like, all "All right, together." We've done our, like, 7-Eleven stop. Okay, we're going to make another quick stop and just kill somebody real fast. Right. <laughs> sit, sit tight for 10 minutes. It seems like a lot of boys were in on this. There were at least five boys that were talking about it, and then yeah. four that were involved in carrying it out. Okay. So in the initial account from him, he says that Pam was not involved whatsoever. He doesn't even know when they ask her about him um, in the taped interview. He's kind of like, who, almost. Interesting. He is... He never implicates Pam, and when they ask him specifically, like, then why did he kill, why would he have killed Greg? He says, because he liked her, I guess. You know, he wanted to be with her. He's like, I never talked to Pam. I don't even know what that's all about. And this is before Pam was, like, the target of the investigation. Yeah, okay. They wanted to, the defense wanted to call him as a witness, of course. Sure. The state arrests him on the same day as the boys get the plea bargain. And they say they're doing it because, according to their evidence, they say that he had attempted with one of the other boys, I think Billy, to carry out the murder a week or two previously, but they drove by the house and he chickened out. And so they arrested him for a few charges based on that. And then he wasn't able to participate in the actual trial? Correct. Or the Pam's trial? Correct. Okay, that's weird. He is also, um, he is arrested and he's put in jail. Cecilia, on September 14th, 1990, signs a Life Story movie deal contract for $100,000. Okay. At first, when they question her, she doesn't even want to believe that Pam could possibly be guilty. And then shortly thereafter, she is talking to every media outlet about all of her guilt. By all accounts, (laughs) even the reporters, Cecilia was obsessed with the media attention yeah she could barely keep a smile off of her face as she's being like trailed to her car sometimes as the you know paparazzi's following her yeah and she gives like a zillion interviews well sure because she's like the linchpin for the prosecution essentially so like it makes sense that like a lot of this seems to be centering around her and it seems like she maybe is kind of a little bit of an opportunist Mm -hmm. in this story, (laughs) regardless of who's guilty and who's innocent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then they also talk about the tapes, and they play the original audio of the tapes, which you can only really hear in bits and pieces. And when you hear the original audio of the tapes, you can barely understand every third word, maybe. So they had to be sent out to an enhancement company. And then transcripts were written by somebody... Not like a licensed person by the state or anything. Transcripts were written for that that were then used as evidence in the trial more than the tapes. So the tapes are heard, and then that's it. And then we have these printed out transcripts that we refer to for the rest of the case as to what's said on the the tapes. Yeah, of somebody's interpretation of enhancing the audio. Right. And there's a zillion parts in the audio that says inaudible, inaudible, inaudible. Right, right. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that they talked about with this, and I think Pamela says it actually in the um, documentary, she says, when you're having a conversation with somebody and you're kind of just going through it, you know, you're like, yeah, uh uh-huh, okay, right, right, yeah. She's like, when you (laughs) read that on a transcript, it looks like I said, 
Right. Absolutely. Yes. Right. It's very different. You don't get the tone. And so the implication of, like, this whole time I've been saying, we've been talking, I've been like, okay, okay, right, right. right yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And if that were transcripted, it looks like I'm just sitting affirming here- everything. Affirming everything exactly. you're saying, as opposed to acknowledging that you've spoken. <laughs> exactly. My favorite part of the documentary, and this is what I think is like the most credible thing inside of the whole thing. Yeah. One of the jurors, juror number 13, they don't name her. She recorded audio of herself every single night after she went back to her hotel room, since they weren't allowed to talk to anybody else, about her thoughts of the trial yeah. as it was going on. Oh, and they play a clever. ton of it on the, in, in the documentary. And it's so fascinating to hear from a juror's mouth like what they're thinking as it as it's going yeah. on versus the people who are watching who knew about the case ahead of time. Right. Really amazing. And some of her takes I just want to go over. From so this is from the juror watching the case as it's happening. And she says, From the jump, she hates how the media is a total circus in the courtroom. It's really uncomfortable yeah. for all the jurors involved. Her first impression of Pam is that she looks tiny and troubled. And she's sort of empathetic mm. to her because she wonders what she must be going through being accused of killing or being uh involved in killing her husband. Right. When Bill, Billy Flynn takes the stand and he, you know, gives his tearful testimony, she says she wasn't impressed by his tears one bit. And she said that, how am I supposed to feel bad for this person who did a first, had first degree premeditated murder lower to second degree murder for a plea bargain when his own testimony says that they planned it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Right. So that's just beyond her. And that like irritates her. And mm -hmm. his performance on the stand, she just kind of viewed it as a performance she doesn't feel bad for him we also find out she also ex, uh, explains that in the case she finds out that bill and pete were cellmates and vance jr was only two open cells away so huh. they were not okay. kept apart at all throughout the trial and so yeah on cross-examination of the boys it's proven that while they said they didn't speak in jail that they actually were speaking in jail to each other Right. One of them wrote a letter to wrote letters to his girlfriend saying they were doing it. Well, and how is that not then perjury that throws out his entire testimony? That's strange to me. He says okay. he doesn't remember. Oh, and then Pete, when he's cross-examined, he's the other one that was in the room that was, you know, standing there. He admits that he is an experienced criminal, that he was stealing motorcycles around the time of the crime. He was robbing houses. And every time they ask him, like, were you doing this? He's like, occasionally from time to time. And her... Uh, assessment of him was that he was a quote sicko <laughs> cecilia she said had selective memory and any question that was asked that it wasn't about the tape she just said she couldn't remember and hmm. she said that in her testimony she said that she tried to help billy get a gun two different times and if that's true then why isn't she being charged as an accessory an excellent question exactly and so she's like i don't believe her story at all and but then why would, okay, mm -hmm. I have so many questions, but I'll wait. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she says at a point, the boys had time, opportunity, and motive to concoct a story in jail. Cecilia was absolutely an accomplice. And that Pamela's story was believable. And she doesn't blame her for hiding the affair at first. Who wouldn't? And if she says, she's not saying she believes her story. She's saying it's believable. And she's saying she's not saying she believes her, um account about the audio tape but she says that if her account were to be true it makes sense in july of 91 she said that after they came back with the um the guilty conviction she said that the jury room had no idea 
that there was a mandatory sentence of life. Oh. They had no idea. And she said yeah. that three of the jurors, including herself, were arguing adamantly that she was innocent and that the rest of them were arguing adamantly that she would be guilty. But that yeah. when they were told by the judge that this was the mandatory sentence, there was not a dry eye in the room when they were all told. Yeah, I remember, like, um, my partner, Miles, he served on a jury for, like, just, like, a insurance accident kind of claim responsibility thing. Mm-hmm. And they were told to apportion blame to different people. Like, what is the percentage of responsibility of the people involved in this? Mm-hmm. And... What they were not told is that if any of the percentage went to, like, one of these people, then none of the other people were were in any way responsible. Ooh. So the fact that they allocated any percentage to one person meant that they were solely responsible for this event. Wow. But they weren't told that prior to being told to apportion responsibility. So it's interesting how the jury doesn't get always a clear picture of everything because— like she is saying, if she had known about the sentencing, then they might have made a different decision, which isn't how it should work, right? Like it should be based solely on the evidence. Right. But so and she even says flat out, she says, and I quote, she would have hung the jury, 100% hung the jury if she knew what the sentence was ahead of time. Because she doesn't think it's fair that the three people who actually were involved in physically carrying out the crime and admitted to it will be free one day and she'll be in jail for the rest of her life. So Pam was constantly being called their teacher. Pam was not a teacher. Okay. She was a director of media media services for 11 schools, only one of which was the high school. Okay. So the the portrayal of her access to and involvement with these boys was overinflated by the media. 100%. Yeah. She only met them because of the orange juice commercial. Okay. And then further on had noticed them more when she would do other things at the high school. Pam says she was in love with her husband until he cheated on her, and she still loved him, but she didn't want to have him killed or anything. She was just heartbroken, and she says that she knew the whole time what she was doing with Billy was wrong. It's the kind of thing where you know you're doing it, you know what you're doing is wrong, and you're doing it anyway, so she doesn't (laughs) dispute that, and she understands that her having the affair with Billy makes her responsible in part for her husband's death. Right, because she, like, brought somebody into their lives. Correct. Who ended up killing him. And she doesn't deny that. She doesn't deny her culpability for that reason. She still says to this day she had nothing to do with the planning of it. And she said that she wasn't really too panicked about the trial until it actually began and the opening statement was read because she believed in the justice system. And she thought, I didn't do anything. This is going to get cleared up. Yeah. When they did the opening statement for the prosecution and they revealed that she had stolen his virginity, that was the first time Pam had ever heard that. And and then she said that that was the moment she knew, like she made the connection like, oh, this this isn't what I thought it was. Right. She said that she couldn't have an audio expert to help with the the tape because it would have cost her 15,000 additional dollars for one. And she had already like spent everything she could on her defense team. Defense. Yeah. And while in prison, she earned her master's in English literature and a master's in criminal law. Mm -hmm. Her professor who taught her these things said that she was the smartest student she's had in her 34-year run as a professor. Hmm. Oh, and I think I already said this, but Greg's best friend testified on the stand that Cecilia had gone, that Pam had gone to him and said, I think Cecilia knows more about the murder. I think they all do. What if I were to pretend like I knew more to hear about? Do you, you, what, what about that? 
Right, and that basically sunk her case. <laughs> yeah. Because it ended up being used against her. Exactly. And he testifies on stand that he said to her, don't be an asshole <laughs> to do that. Right. But Right. So that's basically, and her basic stance is, I, I had an affair with a younger man, and it was wrong, but I didn't kill my husband, and I didn't conspire to kill him. So as far as where all of them are now and what's happened to them, any updates? Okay. Raymond Fowler was released from prison in 2003. He was the other person in the car. He was the getaway passenger. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I think he might have gone back to prison because he doesn't come out and make a statement until 2015. And one thing that this documentary was talking about since it was produced in 2014 was that they were waiting for Raymond Fowler to get out of prison because supposedly he was going to like bust the case open for Pam. Hmm. So they do an interview with him. Um, this documentary does like a supplementary interview with him. They're the first people to speak with him after he's out in 2015. And he says on camera, by the way, it's interesting. I would advise people to watch it. It's not edited too much. So you kind of see like his mannerisms in between. Mm -hmm. He says he thinks it was right that she was a guilty actually, um, based hmm. on what he has seen. And he says that back in the day, Billy had told him. That some girl said they could break in and kill the husband, but he didn't really think about the kill the husband part too much. He was just thinking about the burglary. And he says <laughs> that when they got there, Billy was home, um, and so they they couldn't do it initially. They had to go see Pam because she he wasn't supposed to be there the first time they went. And they went to see Pam at the media center where she worked. Pam came out and yelled at them, and he couldn't hear too clearly what they were saying. She, he only heard bits and pieces because the music was loud. And the whole time he's telling this, he's comparing it to scenes in this movie called Murder in New Hampshire. Mm. The scene, Which is based on the case? Yes. Okay. And let me tell you about this movie. So Murder in New Hampshire is a CBS TV movie. Uh -huh. It's called Murder in New Hampshire, the Pamela Wojas smart story. It stars Helen Hunt as Pamela Wojas and Chad Allen, I believe, as um, Greg. This came out in 1991. And the producer in an interview said that she believes it's the first rip from the headlines TV movie. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was 1991, so re they rushed to get all of this stuff out immediately following the trial. Mm. Because let's remember, when did the trial conclude? March 22nd, 1991, the trial concluded. This episode of Law & Order came out on November 19th, 1991. Wow, okay. The CBS TV movie came out in 1991, and then in 1995... The book To Die For, um, which was by Joyce Maynard, uh, she adapted her novel. It's fiction, but she adapted it based on this case. Yeah. And then this book was adapted into a movie in 1995 starring Nicole Kidman, Matt Dillon, and Joaquin Phoenix. It was a hmm. big, big movie. And um, these things that came out, those two movies specifically, are um, attributed to why, for people who believe she's innocent, why she cannot shake the guilty sort of stigma. Right, because, like, essentially there's, the stories people have heard about it are the guilty exactly. plotline, exactly. storyline. And they yeah. talk a lot about how, you know, once you've accepted the characters in a narrative, you sort of try to, your mind will sort of try to make sense of things to fit that narrative, you know? Yeah. And so, as he's, as Billy Fowler's explaining his version of the story now he's talking a lot about the movie murder in new hampshire and he says um yeah it's just like in the movie like how i said it in the movie or yeah it's just like that and he's very it's just i'll just say watch his mannerisms it's it's okay. unusual and then 
they ask him because, you know, they're like, do you think that perhaps your memory could be remembering things from this movie that you saw when you were incarcerated? Right. Yeah. And he says, no, no, no. I remember what happened. That's just a coincidence. And then in the same breath, he says, but I can tell you, I love that movie. I've seen that movie so many times. I could tell you every single part of that movie. Yeah, that's questionable to me. And again, in his 1990s statement, one of the very first statements they took, he said he never talked to Pam. Yeah. Other people who got out. So Vance Latimy Jr., Jr. he is released in 2005. Flynn and Randall, they were eligible for release in 2015, and they each were released on their very first attempt at parole. Wow. Pamela remains in prison, um, and she, at this point, in order to be released, would have to be authorized by the governor of New Hampshire because she's exhausted all of her appeals already. Wow. And the last update I have on this case is that, um, and I think most of this is a quote from one of the articles, so last, this was in 2021, this article. Hmm. Last fall, one of Paul Maggiotto's murder convictions. Paul Maggiotto is the um, prosecutor on the Pamela Smart case. So okay. one of his murder convictions in the 80s was overturned uh, in fall for him not revealing that one of his witnesses was not psychologically fit to testify. And so now they're starting to look back into some of his old cases, including the Pamela Smart trial, hopefully according to people who want them to. And there's also a bill in legislature currently that would allow for those serving a life sentence to have a hearing after serving 25 years of that sentence, which she has served, I think, 30 at this point. In February 2018, Smart's legal team submitted a petition for her sentence to be commuted, including um, testimonials from people that she knew in prison. A member of the New Hampshire Executive Council, Andrew Valinsky, said, quote, I was struck by the letters of support. I was struck by how well Ms. Smart had conducted herself in prison. And then I got to the memo that she personally wrote. It was the very first paragraph. She claimed she had no involvement with his death. That is at great odds with the evidence in this case. The failure to recognize her own culpability was what convinced me to vote against the hearing. How do I trust hmm. someone who hasn't even come to terms with her own responsibility for the death of her husband? End quote. So Pamela has exhausted all of her appeals. She's not giving up hope. She's going to try everything she can. She got these degrees in prison because she wants to do everything she can to get out of prison while her mother is still living. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have some notes about things that have happened to her in prison. I don't need to go over them, but she's she's been treated pretty poorly in prison. Um, some of the inmates have been interviewed and said, like, they all knew she was coming and people were ready to basically let her have it. Yeah. So... She's still serving out her sentence, and there's a lot of controversy about whether she should be or not. Um, I don't know how I feel anymore about about that. I was 100% yeah. positive she belonged in prison. I don't necessarily know if the sentencing is fair anymore, uh, or if she's even necessarily involved in the planning anymore, but that's kind of all I got. Yeah, what an interesting case. It's I've I feel like there is so many questions and so little answers. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to me that regardless of her involvement, there are many issues with that having been a fair trial or not, like including the media thing, including the perjury by one of the key witnesses, mm -hmm. like that all to me screams mistrial. And so I'm really surprised that that led to a, a guilty conviction, especially since you know, guilty has to be beyond reasonable doubt. There's a lot of reasonable oh, doubt yeah. that you've shared with me. Obviously, we're not jurors, so we didn't see all of 
all of this, but I would have questions and that would make me unable to convict if I was on the jury. Yeah, you can tell that in the juror number 13's tapes, she says like a few times, she's like sighing to herself and she's like, you're innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And she keeps saying it and she's like, I don't know. I mean, there's reasonable doubt, you know? And I feel like, I feel like if that is the justice system, I personally think there's reasonable doubt here for sure. Yeah. Every attempt to get a fair trial seems to have been thwarted. And even little things, like there was a piece of evidence that they wanted in about Pete. Yeah. He had been in juvenile detention for trying to assault, for assaulting his father with a baseball bat. Hmm. But they wouldn't allow that into trial because it was was a juvenile offense. Um, Things like that. Or the fact that Based on the forensics, it would look like the shot was by someone who was right-handed, and hmm. Billy Flynn is left-handed, and Pete is right-handed. And the interesting, the overall theory is that Pete, the all overall alternative theory is that Billy Flynn didn't shoot Greg. It was actually Pete who shot Greg, and Billy was there in the room. And the reason they went with Billy was because it was a more compelling story to have the lover of Pamela Smart be the one to pull the trigger in order to get Pamela convicted. But all the evidence, the physical evidence, seems to point to the person standing in front of Greg who pulled the trigger, and the person who stood in front of Greg had a a bit of a violent record. Yeah. Whereas Billy Hmm. Flynn did not, and looked like a baby-faced rock star. So, (laughs) you know, there's that. And let me just ask one more clarifying question before we wrap up, which is in the TV, in the Law and Order episode, there was the financial motive of the wit, the wife. But did Pam ever stand to benefit from Greg's death other than the theory that it was retribution for his infidelity? I don't believe so. The only huh. financial aspect of it that ever came up was there was um, allegations that Pam had offered to pay the boys initially with like $500 each if they did it. Okay. Wow. Great job. Thank you. It was a lot. And it's a, it's a big one. Yeah. I feel like I really could have done a lot more um, diving into it. But it's kind of like you said, one of the people in one of the articles said that it's the kind of case where not a lot happens and it's fascinating you know there's not a lot of like it's it's just two different stories basically you know yeah and there's problems with both of them yeah exactly (laughs) i mean i think it's one of those stories kind of like the menendez like when we talk about the menendez brothers of like there are multiple truths of like maybe she was guilty of this but also also maybe she did not get a fair trial (laughs) all right well how would you rate the episode Hmm. Um, I would, I don't know. I didn't love this episode because I found it a little hard to yeah. follow. Because everybody was fucking lying constantly, so you never knew what was actually happening. Yeah, and it seemed like when they would catch her in a lie specifically, there was no like, oh, you got me. Okay, here's the truth. It was just like, okay, here's the truth. There was no like remorse about her lying. There was no like accountability towards right. her throughout the, the process. Like, hey, you lied. Why'd right. you lie? It's like... All right, here's the truth this time. All right, you got me. Okay, you got here's me Here's another again. story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know. Watchability, I'm going to give it, I thought it was kind of forgettable. I'm going to give it a C. C minus, actually. I think I'll give it a, I'm going to give it a C plus solely for the creative direction of the hairstyling department. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, and then for the crime, I mean, there's a lot of connections. Um Yeah. I'm trying to remember how, I mean, I don't really know ultimately how I feel about how everything happened. Um, 
yeah in the crime so it's hard to say whether they treated it well i don't know i'll give it a i'll give it a higher crime for the b uh for the crime i'll give it a b solid b i think that's fair like it was a a fair interpretation of the story like a dramatization of it yeah without making it such a clear obvious this is the case and making it really prejudicial like some of the other things mm-hmm. you talked about as like interpreting it so yeah and i mean you know they're they're doing a, a case inspired by the crime they're not trying to i guess change your mind about it so yeah you know well ripped from the headlines as an indie podcast and if you enjoy listening to us and you think other folks might too which they will the best thing you could do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform <laughs> platform Whatever platform you use. (laughs) Whatever Whatever popcorn you're using to listen to our episodes. (laughs) Whatever platform you use to listen to our episodes. It helps a lot of other people find us, and it's also my favorite thing to do is to read our reviews. Even the bad ones. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Also, most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it, so if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. You can find us on Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We love getting emails from you, so please send us a note just to say hi. Also, don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. We are very, very shortly launching a Patreon, potentially by the time that this episode comes out. So if you're listening to this, go to that website right now and see if there's a link to the Patreon. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> Drop everything. We if all... you're driving, just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Ignore traffic. Look at your phone right now. And we also love collaborating with other podcasters and makers. So if you're a fellow podcaster or host of something, feel free to contact us. And if you would like to see us collaborate with another podcast, just put us in touch. Thanks so much for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.